Well, good morning, church. So good to see all of you today. Uh, We are today finishing the study, our long sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. We've been working through this whole book for a period of about 18 months with little stops uh, in between. Um, And today we come to the culmination of the Gospel of Luke. We're picking up here in Luke 24 where we left off last week. If you remember last week, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus met the risen Jesus. They've run back to Jerusalem to report uh, what they've heard to the 11 who are also reporting that they too have seen and met the risen Jesus. So that's where we pick up. Uh, Let me pray as we go to God's word. Father, we do thank you and praise you uh, for this word that you have given to us through which we know and hear your voice. Just as Jesus opened the minds of the disciples so that they could understand the scriptures, would you open our minds today? We can't do it without you. We, we, our, our eyes, our minds, our hearts are too clouded. We need your help. So we pray that you would open my mouth that I, I might proclaim your word with the power of the Spirit and may you open all of our hearts that we might not just hear your word, but respond to it with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 24, verse 36 through 53. Hear God's word, friends. It is absolutely true, uh, and it is given to each one of you in love. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm really excited today because we get to talk about one of the most important yet least understood and certainly least discussed events in the life of Jesus, and that is his ascension. As we just uh, confessed in that great creed, he has ascended to the Father where he sitteth, don't you love that word? He sitteth uh, at the right hand of the Father. Now, we just don't think about the ascension much. I would reckon to guess that not a single one of you have thought about the ascension this week. Well, maybe one of you have. We won't have a show of hands. But we spent a lot of time um, thinking about the birth of Jesus. 
We spend a whole lot of time thinking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Rightly so. These events are at the center and the heart of the gospel. We have whole holidays about these events, you know, Christmas and Easter. The culture has created mascots around these events, you know, Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. We spend a lot of time thinking about the events in between these two events, the miracles, the healings, the teachings of Jesus. But very rarely do we in the church meditate and think about the ascension of Jesus Christ. It's very unlikely that anyone has ever come up to you to wish you a happy Ascension Day. It's, you probably have not received an Ascension greeting card in the mail. Anyone, anyone here? There's one person in the earlier service, but they were an Anglican, so it doesn't really count. Um, so this is not something that we think about very much. And yet, as we'll see today from this text, the Ascension is one of the great keys of the Christian life. Just as you would never build a beautiful house for no one to ever live in, nor would you ever cook an exquisite feast for no one to ever eat. Uh, nor would you um, write a glorious symphony for no orchestra to ever perform. The birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus are of no use to anyone unless Jesus ascends to the Father to make his life and work available to all. His ascension is like the detonator, the trigger that makes the power of his life and work available to you in all people under heaven. His ascension is the key to everything. So what is it? What is the ascension exactly? I think this is something that we are so unfamiliar with, I think it bears explanation. Look with me at verse 51. Luke writes... He left them and was taken up into heaven. Now, that is a very bare description. What does this actually mean? And I want you to know, I was studying this a lot this week. I mean, this just stretches the limits of the human mind. And so, I, you know, I just want to kind of say from the start, forgive me for if I'm not able to explain what is actually going on here very well, because I think very few of us can understand it. Let's just say first what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that Jesus is up there in outer space somewhere floating around dodging satellites. Um, that is not what it means. Yuri uh, Gagarin was the Russian cosmonaut who first went up into space in 1961. And when he came back, he was doing a press conference, and they asked him you know, what he saw. And he said, well, I'll tell you what I didn't see. I didn't see God, and I didn't see heaven. Now, I think it's a pretty silly thing to say for someone as smart as him. Um, as, if, as if Jesus was living up there, you know, sort of in the upper attic of the universe, and if you just go far enough up there, you could find him. That is not what the ascension means. So what does it mean? Well, note in verse 51 that it says that he was taken into heaven, in the singular. Not heavens, which is the word the Bible uses to describe the atmosphere in the sky. Heaven is the word that the Bible uses to describe the place where God lives, the realm of God. This is not a different location in the universe. It is a different dimension, a different realm altogether. Heaven is the place where God lives and reigns as distinct from the realm of earth. Um, I tried very hard to come up with an illustration to describe this, and this is the best I could do. So forgive me if it is not very adequate, okay? But think about a novel for a moment. Think about a book of fiction. Let's take one that a lot of you kids know, Harry Potter. Okay, In every novel, in every work of fiction, there are two realms at play. First, there is the realm of the characters in the story. So in Harry Potter, there's Hogwarts, there's Privet Drive. You know, there, there's the, the dimension where the characters live within the story. That's the realm of the story. At the same time, there is the realm of the author. There is the realm of J.K. Rowling. 
you know, where she lives in, in England. So there is the realm of the characters in the story. There is the realm of the author. Is it possible for the characters to get to the realm of the author? Can Ron Weasley get into a spacecraft and go up and up and up until he meets J.K. Rowling? No, he cannot. However, is it possible for the author of the story to enter into the realm of the characters? Why, by all means. Many authors have done it. Many authors have written themselves into the realm of their own story. And so this is what I'm saying. In this analogy, we are in the story. We are the characters, the men and the women and the boys and girls in the realm of the story. And God, the author, has written himself in the incarnation as a character in our own story, Jesus Christ. And in the ascension, Jesus then departs to go back into the realm of the author where he now reigns as king over both heaven and earth, the realm of the author and the realm of the story. And one day, Scripture says, he will take both of these realms, both heaven and earth, and he will unite them in the new creation where Jesus Christ will reign over heaven and earth, and of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Are you all with me? Do you understand? Is this mind-bending enough for you? Peter says it like this. Jesus has gone into the heavens and is now at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers all things in heaven and earth subjected to him. In other words, he's the new CEO of everything. He is the executive director, both of everything in heaven and everything in earth. He has not gone to live in a different place in the universe. He has changed his relationship to the universe. He is now the king. The revolution of the king has been completed in the ascension. Jesus reigns over all things. So if this is true, friends... And I know some of you may not even believe this is true. But if this is true, what does this mean for us? What are the implications and the applications for our life in the here and now? Well, I want to look with you to tease out some of the implications at this great uh, catechism uh, written in the 16th century in Germany. You know, Germans make great cars. They make great catechisms. So we're going to look at this one. The Heidelberg Catechism, 1576, question 49, says this. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? Isn't that a great question? Don't you want to know that? How does Christ's ascension benefit us? Well, here's what they said. First, he is our advocate in heaven in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. And third, he sends his spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. Can I just point out, I didn't make up the whole three-point thing. See, that is, a, uh, that is a great heritage of the Reformed tradition. In all eternity in the kingdom of God, the Presbyterians will be remembered for creating the three points. That's our contribution to Christendom, right? Three points. So let's look at these three points. Let's look at all of these things which we find in this text. First, he is our advocate in heaven in the presence of the Father. What does that mean? Well, John says it like this in 1 John. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, John is clearly using the language of the court, a language of the trial. What do you do when you get in trouble? What do you get in, when you get in trouble with the law? Well, you don't know the law. I mean, some of you, some of you are lawyers, but excluding you. Um, you don't know the law. You don't know how to defend yourself. You don't know what to say. You don't have the skills and the eloquence to defend yourself. So what do you need? What you need is you need a defense attorney. You need someone, an advocate for you, 
to stand in on your behalf, someone who can be your representative and speak for you on your behalf before the judge. I saw one of these crime drama shows a while back, and the defendant was a real hothead. He was always, you know, saying things to get himself in trouble. And so the defense attorney, before they went to the court, the defense attorney said, I want you to sit at that table and keep your mouth shut. When we're in that courtroom, I act for you. I speak for you. I am you. You just say nothing. Just sit at the table. And he did. And in a very real way, that's what's true. What do you look like in court? You look like your defense attorney. If your defense attorney is brilliant, you're brilliant. If your attorney is a fool, you're a fool. If your attorney wins, you win. If your attorney loses, you lose. In other words, you are in your advocate. Your, your advocate is your substitute, the one who stands for you. And what this text is saying is that Jesus is now the advocate for you in the highest court in the universe. That when you put your faith in Jesus, you have a perfect advocate for you in heaven. You are in him. He stands as your representative in your defense before the throne of God. Now, when I was a young Christian, I sort of misunderstood this. I thought that Jesus was up there with like a big caseload. And he was like, you know, he came to me like every week and he was like, well, God, you know, I know this Widmer guy's a doofus, but um, I, come on, just, just forgive him again. Okay. Just have, no, this is not what this means. It means that Jesus's record is my record, that his righteousness is my righteousness, that his triumph is my triumph. His victory is my victory. He stands on my behalf, and I am accepted and received by God the Father on the basis of his death and his risen life. As Hebrews says, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way open to us through the curtain. That is his body. And we have this great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near to God in full assurance of faith, boldly coming into his presence. It's like that great hymn says that I love. It says, Listen to this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, listen, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my soul is counted free and God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Isn't that crazy, y'all? It's saying that the verdict up there is my reality down here. That the verdict up there is over. Case closed. My life is complete. I am full and righteous in him. My relationship with God does not depend on my feelings. And it does not depend on my moral performance. It does not depend on whether I had my quiet time yesterday. It does not depend on how messed up I'm living. It does not depend on whether or not I feel close to God. It is based on the fact of Jesus' completed death and resurrection. And now his ascended life that stands for me. Do you see the implications of this? So many of us wrestle with guilt and shame, defining ourselves by our failures and our struggles, what others have said or done to us. Look to him. As Paul says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your identity is bound up in Jesus, your advocate before the Father. You are forgiven, loved, and freed in him. So many of us are struggle with insecurity, caring so much about what people think of us, always seeking to prove ourselves, always seeking to essentially get a verdict from other people to pronounce and justify our lives as meaningful. Friends, you are free. You are clear. You are acquitted in the highest court in the universe. You have been given praise and approval by the God of all. Why do you care so much about what these other little people think? You have been pronounced loved and forgiven and freed and cleared 
by the God who made you. This is the real truth about you. You are in Christ, raised to new life at him. I love what the old Scottish preacher said, Robert Murray McShane. He, he, uh, he says this, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love. Repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ in all that is in him. Stop looking so much at yourself, friends, and look at the one in whom your life is hidden. Christ, your advocate. Second, the second thing the ascension shows us is that we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge. Don't you love Luke's details here that he gives? He wants to make it very clear that Jesus is not a ghost. He's not an apparition. He's not a spirit. He is a resurrected man with a fully human body. Look at verse 39. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And then verse 41 has to be one of the great comic moments in all of scripture, right? As they are reeling and gasping in amazement, Jesus says, Anybody have any leftovers or something? Like, I am starving. I've been in the grave for three days, man. He is a fully human man. And this will really blow your mind, right? Because when Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't shed his body like, you know, I shed my suit after standing, you know, a long day in the sun at a wedding. You know, Jesus did not discard his flesh as some cumbersome thing that he no longer wants to go back to being the pre-incarnate son. No, he now is at the right hand of the Father in the flesh, every bit as much of a man as I am. He can clap his hands and slap his thighs and comb his hair and pick his nose and do all the... Mark Sprinkle and I had a debate in the service of whether boogers are in the glorious new creation. But hey, that's for something for us to figure out later. Anyway, what the, the truth of this is, friends, is that a human being... A human being is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, ruling over heaven and earth. And the catechism said his body, his flesh, is our pledge. Our pledge that you too are moving towards a glorious, resurrected new creation. Philippians 3 says it like this. Our citizenship is in heaven where Jesus is. Remember, that's the realm of God. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Note it does not say we eagerly await to go to heaven. It says we eagerly await the man from heaven, the one who by the power that God has given him will transform your lowly body, your aching, creaking, suffering, ailing, body, and he will transform it into, be like his glorious body, and he will raise the earth to reflect his own resurrected self. That is our future, friends. That is our destination. And you got to know your destination if you're going to be able to navigate the travails of this world. On Wednesday, I was up in Alexandria for a meeting, and I had a 415 train back to London. I mean, back to London, back to Richmond. That'd be a crazy train across the sea. (laughs) Um, I had a 415 train back to Richmond, and I got to the station at about 410, and I just went up to the train, the, the conductor window to find out about my train, and there were two women standing in front of the Amtrak window, and they were clearly very distressed, strangers to me, and I asked them what was going on, and they said, well, our train is four hours late. 
And my heart sunk. I wanted to get home to have dinner with my family. And so I said, well, what are we going to do? And they said, well, they said, if we can get over to Union Station, then we can catch a train an hour later and still get home in time. And so I said, okay, let's, let's do it. So the three of us jumped into an Uber, and we, and we raced. We began to you know, drive across the city. And you know, we were just talking, getting to know these women. And, and about 10 minutes in, I started to gather some things about them, and I started to have this sinking feeling in my stomach. And I, and I said to her, um, I said, excuse me, um, where are you going? <laughs> she said, we're going to New York. <laughs> I never thought to ask a destination. You know? So in the meantime, I'm speeding away from the station, and my train comes in and leaves. And I miss my train. Friends, if you don't know where you're going... You will live a very confused life, much like your pastor. If you don't know where you're going, friends, how else are you going to make it in this world? Garrison Keillor, who, who I, I dearly miss from Prairie Home Companion, once said, if life doesn't break your heart at least once a day, that shows a real lack of imagination. There is enough sorrow There is enough pain in a single day to break your heart. And how are you going to get through that? Some of y'all get through it through self-medicating, through alcohol, through Netflix, numbing yourselves through new experiences, new stuff, new vacations, doing anything to stop thinking about the pain and the meaninglessness of your existence. Others of us, the more religious among us, just kind of hunker down and try to get through it and wait till we go to heaven one day. Friends, that is not where we're going. Our destination is not the cemetery. Our destination is not some disembodied existence. Our destination is resurrection. Our world does not end in despair. Your own body will not end with cancer and disease. History does not end in chaos. Your life will not culminate in the cold, dead earth. Our destination is resurrection. And the very flesh and joints and fingernails and tendons of Jesus stand in heaven as the pledge of your future hope. That is our destination. What we will be one day, what our world will be, and when you believe that, you can live this life with incredible meaning and hope. Someone once asked Martin Luther, what would you do if you knew the world was going to end tomorrow? And you know what Martin Luther said? He said, I'd plant a tree. Plant a tree? What are you talking about, Martin? Why would you plant a tree if you knew the world was going to end tomorrow? And do you know why? Because Martin Luther understood what many modern, especially modern evangelical Christians, do not understand. And that is that the coming of Jesus does not mean the end of the world. It means the beginning of the world. It means the resurrection of the world. So when Jesus comes again, as as you all sang in the beginning of the service, the trees will dance and sing and shout for joy. Just think what that tree will do. Just think of the glorified, resurrected, beautified state of that tree, how it will sing and dance. Think about how creation will be restored. Think about how your own body will be resurrected to be like his glorious body, friends. Our destination is not escaping this awful world to go to heaven. Our destiny is heaven coming down to earth to renew all things, to banish death and hunger and injustice and illness and disease. So what do we do? We plant. We build. We mend bodies, we restore communities, we fight injustice, we create beauty. We, we love creation. We live knowing like where we're going. Jesus' risen body is a foretaste of the risen earth. 
That's the pledge. So do you see, friends, this, how, how amazing the ascension is? And these first two truths gives us this peculiar identity. Because in the first, we see that Jesus is our advocate, and so our, our life is in him. Our citizenship is in him. You can be totally free from the world. You don't have to be defined by your performance or by your job or your resume or by what people think about you. You're totally free from the world. But the second truth, his resurrected body tells you that you are freed for the world, that you are called to create and redeem and renew this very world, which is the world that Jesus seeks to redeem. What a peculiar place we find ourselves in as Christians, that through Jesus Christ, we can be both freed from the world and for it simultaneously, and that is through the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a glorious truth. The last thing uh, that we see is this is that he sends his spirit to send to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. Next week, we're going to start a five-week series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, Rick Hutton will kick, kick us off next Sunday. And so I don't want to go into great detail about this now, but I just want to draw your attention to verse 47. Jesus says this, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in the name of the Messiah to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, that is the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power, again the Spirit, from on high. A couple of things to say about this. First of all, we see here that the ascension does not mean that Jesus is missing. It does not mean that, that Jesus is up there somewhere hanging out playing chess with your dead relatives while we're kind of muddling along here on earth. No, what this means is that in sending the Spirit, Jesus is actually intensifying his presence. Imagine if Jesus had never ascended and he was still walking around here on his resurrected body. 2.2 billion Christians vying for his time, vying for his attention. You know, he's in New Jersey and the people, you know, next door in the next state, New York, or the people in India or China, they're wanting a piece of him. There's auctions for his calendar time. I mean, could you imagine Jesus was a, is a limited human being if he continues on the earth. But instead, he has ascended to heaven and has sent his spirit to make himself available to every single one of us in all of time, in all of history, in every nation, and not just that, to dwell within us as well by the spirit. It's not his absence. It's the intensification of his presence. And the second thing we see is that he gives his presence for a purpose, and that is to extend his mission and continue his ministry. You know, some of you know, that Luke wrote two books, right? He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he wrote the book of Acts. The first is the story of Jesus. The second is the story of the church. And Luke begins his second book with this. In my first book, I wrote to you, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. Now, take note. If the book of Luke is about what Jesus began to do, what is the book of Acts, class? What Jesus continues to do. Yes, thank you. Good job. It is the second part of the same story. It's the sequel, if you will. Most sequels are terrible and unnecessary, as we all know. This is why we'll be watching, you know, Fast and Furious 95 when we're, you know, 80. Most of them are completely unnecessary and futile. But some sequels are vital because they continue the story, and that is what the book of Acts is. It is a sequel to the book of Luke that continues the story, and hear this, it is the same protagonist as the book of Luke. It is the same hero as the book of Luke. 
It is the same plot as the book of Luke. It is Jesus Christ. But whereas in the first he acted through his own bodily presence in the sequel, he continues his work through the power of the spirit through the church. And this is truly an amazing strategy. How else could Jesus accomplish what he says here in verse 47 of preaching to the nations? I mean, Jesus was able to cover a whole lot of ground in the three years of his public ministry, but in those three years, he was only able to cover about 75 square miles. And yet, in Ephesians 2, Paul says to the Ephesians, listen to this, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away, and he preached peace to you who were near. Now, how could that be? Jesus never went to Ephesus. That's 600 miles away from where Jesus lived. How could, Jesus never even went close to Asia Minor. How could Paul say that Jesus came to Ephesus and preached to them? Why? Because Paul did. The church did. The people of God did. And now through the church, through the people of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus continues his proclaiming. He continues his ministry. He continues his work of love to the nations of the earth. We get to be a part of that story, friends. You all who are joining the church today, I want you to know, my uh, dear brothers and sisters, that you're not joining a club today. Uh, You're not joining sort of a a social association uh, that you can put on your resume. You are joining a movement of the people of God, a movement that extends throughout history, which is the continuing ministry of Jesus in the world through the power of the Spirit. We get to be a part of that story. We get to be a part of the sequel, Jesus, the action movie, part two. You know, we're actors in the story. Jesus operating through his people. Jesus lives in Westover Hills and Midlothian and Short Pump. Jesus shops at the Carytown Kroger and the Chesterfield Wegmans. Jesus goes to Thursday night jazz concerts at the VMFA. Jesus sits in the upper bleachers at at the Flying Squirrels game. Jesus eats lunch at Moe's. You know, Jesus works at Capital One. Anywhere and everywhere, his people go and live and proclaim There Jesus is, as he says, you are my witnesses. You are the ones who speak my love, who tell of my mercy, who show my grace, who extend my kingdom. Every time you share the good news of Jesus with another person, they are hearing it from the person of Jesus himself. All of this is only possible through the ascension. One of the reasons why we are moving in this next year to organize our church around parishes, around geographic groups according to where we live is because, frankly, we're trying to obey Jesus. We're trying to listen to the command of Jesus to not stay clumped together, Forest Avenue, conglomerating ministry here, staring up into heaven, waiting for him to come. But we are dispersing, as Jesus called us to, to extend where we live, where we spend our time, the ministry and the proclamation of Jesus all over Richmond, to be engrafted into the adventure of Jesus's mission to renew all things. This is what makes the ascension possible. So friends, I want you to know that today is the beginning of a new week. Happy new week. And this afternoon and tomorrow, you're going to go back into ordinary life, mowing your lawn, making your bed, doing your dishes, taking out the trash, talking, arguing with your spouse, disciplining your children, dealing with bills, back into the ups and downs and joys and boredoms and difficulties and decisions and worries that keep you up at night, the struggles and the pain of your body, the anxieties of the future, the struggles against the same dark voices inside of you, the voices of condemnation outside of you, all of these things begin again today. 
And yet here is what is also true, friends. Jesus is ascended. Jesus is alive. Jesus reigns. Jesus is the king over heaven and earth. And because of the ascension, these things are also true of you, that Jesus is for you. He is your advocate before the Father. Jesus is ahead of you. He is the pledge to you of your resurrected hope. He is with you by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he acts through you to extend his ministry of grace to all the world. May your life this ordinary week, friends, be defined by what is most true. For every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at the ascended Jesus, because your life is hidden with Christ in God forever. Thanks be to God.